and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with more than a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and I think Vibrissa is cute. Vibrissa? I've never heard of that before. Vibrissa is just another fun word for cat's whiskers. Oh, those are cute. I don't think it's dog whiskers. It just says cat whiskers on my research. Yeah, I imagine they do different things, so dog whiskers are probably different. Yeah, I think cats use theirs more for hunting, and dogs are just there because they're special. Something like that. Yeah, well. Any animal behaviorist and or biologist out there, let us know. Yeah. Well, yeah, so we are back in the studio, our little pod room surrounded by sheets, um, and uh, we're doing Richard Ramirez Part 4. Our final Richard Ramirez. Yes. Put this man to rest. In his case, and all of the victims that he had, R.I.P. All of them. Um, but prior to that, Courtney, I have a question for you. Okay, I'm ready. Now, thinking back, so we've almost been doing this for a year now. It's been like ten months. Um, has any of your behaviors changed since doing all of this research on serial killers? Has any of my behaviors changed? That's like, a good question. Like, have you learned something and you're like, okay, crap, I'm not going to do that anymore, or I'm not going to be as vulnerable? I don't know. Like, if, has there been any situations where you've maybe changed what you your behavior from before now that you know more about how they operate? Mm-hmm. You know, I really don't think so. I feel like either... Like all of these, so many of these serial killers were active in doing things like so long ago mm-hmm. that I'm, I guess I feel like there's much more technology nowadays. There's much more surveillance nowadays. Um, there's more awareness of serial killers nowadays. So I feel like, yeah, I think I'm about as cautious as I've always been, just, you know, being a small sized woman existing in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think I've really gotten any more scared. Well, I stopped hiking by myself. Mm. I used to go on um, pretty remote hikes where there would be sometimes I wouldn't see anyone for my whole hike, like because it was such a um, out of the way trail or, you know, whatever. And I would take my dog. But um, I kind of stopped doing that more than more than just the serial killer aspect of some dude being out there that could like overpower me and bury me out there there's also the the wild animals there's also getting hurt mm-hmm. you know not having um being in cell phone range but I still would hike anyways and now I'm just like no I can't like I have to have a buddy with me there's too much um that could go wrong and more likely than not if something were to go bad it would be because of another person out mm. there Okay. Statistics wise. So anyhow, that's kind of where, you know, one of my behaviors has changed. Okay. I can see that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it kind of sucks because I liked going hiking. I mean, I go hiking with anyone, but if I couldn't find someone, I would still go. Right. And just find cool places and waterfalls. I love going on waterfall hikes and those typically are a little out of the way. Mm -hmm. Maybe you just need to get a scarier looking dog. Right. Well, maybe, but I can't just trade him in. Well, no, but like in addition to him. <laughs> well, and I used to like, you know, carry some sort of weapon or um, bear spray or, you know, I did used to have a concealed carry. But um, I, it, 
still it would take me a while to get it out if mm-hmm. I needed it in a pinch and I'd probably spray myself with the bear spray or, you know, I used to have a flashlight taser thing and I tased myself when I was camping. So, you know, just my luck. Right. So, yeah, that makes sense. And I remember when we um, talked to the Seattle pl- police department at the crime fest last weekend and they said, don't take a weapon if you won't use it because then it will be used on you. Absolutely. So. Which is why I don't carry weapons yeah. because I don't trust that I would use it. I mean, and I'm not even talking about like a firearm, but like, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, whatever. Yeah. That right. was a good, a good lesson to yes. learn there. So, all right. Well, that was my question. Okay. That's a good question. Uh, now that I've posed it to you, maybe you will think of something in the future that you're like, well, maybe I do do that a little bit differently. Yeah. I'll definitely be paying more attention to it. Okay. Um, well, do you want to give us a recap on, I guess last time it was just kind of the murders. Right. So you don't have to like <laughs> go deep or anything. <laughs> yeah. So just a quick recap, I guess, of our last three episodes, right? Mm-hmm. We met young Richard Ramirez from Texas, born into a religious and abusive home, experienced lots and lots of trauma as a child, experienced and being exposed to lots of terrible materials all before becoming a teenager and then started stealing and then eventually moved to LA in California where he continued stealing and doing a lot of cocaine and drinking and smoking marijuana. And then he got into Satanism and then he continued to do a lot of drugs and then he started murdering people and he, in our last episode, he murdered, I believe it was 14. I can't keep, uh, I don't, I'm not sure the number. Well, I mean, so he murdered quite a few and then he victimized quite a few. That's true. So yes, I apologize. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. Yes. So he hurt a lot of people mm-hmm. and went on sort of this spree mm-hmm. all over Los Angeles and sort of surrounding areas. Yeah. So while this was happening, so like, let's look about August 85, um, the police but let's see what they were doing. So while the net stalker was, you know, going ham, by this point, the press was reporting constantly about the Night Stalker crimes, and it was all over the country. People were aware of this predator in the L.A. area. And a recently promoted homicide detective, Gil Cario, was partnered with storied veteran police detective Frank Salarno on the Night Stalker case. And Frank was um, kind of responsible for the Hillside Stranglers being caught. So... He had experience in serial killers. And the two of these men worked tirelessly for months on this case. Apparently, they were so worried about the Night Stalker like hitting their homes that they even moved some of their family members out of the area of Los Angeles to keep them safe. Eventually, they were able to match shoe prints between multiple crime scenes and were even able to figure out that only a couple of pairs of that type of shoe in that size were even sold in the California area. I, it might have only been one. It was like a size 11 Avia. I think it was only one, the yeah. only size 11 black Avia. Yeah. So they figured out where the perpetrator went also for dental work because, you know, remember everyone said that he had stanky ass teeth and it was just pretty gross. And um, they found the dentist where, you know, of course he used a, a different name, um, but the dentist said, oh, he'll be back. His teeth are bad. And they even had um, officers staked out at that dental office. Unfortunately, um, he did come in, but the the system they rigged for like the dentist to press the alarm button or whatever to notify the cops, it, it malfunctioned and it didn't work. And um, so the the people that were there um, surveilling didn't weren't 
made aware that Richard was in there. So that sucks. But <clears throat> so the police sketches had also been released prior to um, the discovery of Richard, and they were really bad. At least the ones I've seen. Uh, Not good. No. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how many times I've seen ones that are accurate, but like, I've seen memes of like, no wonder how they couldn't catch the Night Stalker and stuff because like, uh, they were terrible. So, um, eventually the two cops were able to talk to enough witnesses he had left alive and people that they believed to be the associates or, you know, people that Richard Ramirez might sell things to or buy things from or at the night, the night stalker might. Um, plus they got a possible name from an outside jurisdiction, um, that prompted them to check arrest records in LA. And that name was Richard Ramirez. They found several Richard Ramirez's probably a pretty common name in that area. But they were able to actually match one of the fingerprints they had to an arrest record of a Richard Ramirez. And luckily, they had a mugshot. So they had his photo. So now that they knew who it was um, that they were dealing with, they had to decide if they should notify the public to protect and prevent further homicides or risk alerting Richard and having him run. So I guess there was all sorts of people involved in this decision, um, many that were higher up than the two detectives, Salarno and Carrillo. And I think the de detectives did not want it to be made public. They were afraid that Richard would see that and take off. Um, but they were overruled. So it was released to um, the public on August 30th, 1985. There was a press conference. And that press conference showed the image of it, Richard and the name. Um, and it was said, this is the Night Stalker. And I think it was at night because they just kind of went, you know, let's get this out right away. So the police thinking that Richard might try to bolt from L.A. after being outed um, went to the bus station. They were undercover, <clears throat> and they were there waiting for him. And um, But what actually happened, Richard was out of town when all this news hit. He was in Arizona trying to visit his brother, and he was aware that his – unaware, sorry, that his identity had been discovered. Um, so I guess, you know, at this time, a, a lack of instant news is a good thing. Because, you know, if it had been today, it would have just popped up on a cell phone or, you know, it would have been. Right. It, it would have yeah. been in his hand. Yeah, exactly. Because um, had he known about all this, he definitely would not have come to L.A. And who knows how long he would have gotten away with everything and how many others he might have killed. Or he would have killed. I mean, I think it's pretty safe to say he wasn't going to stop. Um, so the police on the bus site were looking for people trying to get out of L.A., but they were not paying attention to those coming into L.A. So Richard does see the cops because, you know, he can tell they aren't actual street people. But he's not worried, though. He doesn't think they're there for him. But just in case, you know, for some reason, he evades them. And he goes to a liquor store. He walks there on foot. And inside the liquor store, he does see a newspaper with him on the front page. He, of course, freaks out and gets the hell out of there and jumps up on a bus um, with the goal in mind to get to his brother's house in East L.A., which is only eight miles away. So a passenger on the bus was reading a paper and noticed Richard. He realized who it was, and he pulled the cord to get off the bus. I guess his eyes got wider, and Richard saw this. So the dude got off immediately, went to a phone to call the police. Richard saw all of this, and now he's like, shit. So more and more people on the bus now are noticing who he is and are getting all excited and agitated. So Richard gets off the bus, tries to get out of the public view. And so the man who had actually got off the bus to call the police went even a step further. And while he was on the phone, he flagged down a truck driver and told the man that the night stalker was on that bus. 
and the man in the truck followed the bus and saw Richard get off. So Richard was now physically running. He actually ran across the whole I-5 freeway to get away. And in L.A., that's a pretty big freeway. Yeah, that's like <laughs> eight lanes, lanes or yeah, something. Like tons of lanes. Um, he, of course, attempted to carjack a man, but he was unable to. He kept running, and he tried to carjack another woman. And while he was attempting this, another person saw what was happening, and I think it was her husband, actually, and hit Ramirez on the head. He ran away from the man. The man kept hitting him. The man chased him and then hit him again before Ramirez actually got away from the man. And at this point, the whole neighborhood was, like, figuring out what was happening. They were all screaming, it's him. They were yelling, El Matador, and I guess that's killer in Spanish. And, you know, they were just chasing him, this whole neighborhood. And all the while he was running, he was, I guess, turning his head back, sticking his tongue out, and hissing at his pursuers. Um... He was getting kind of hit pretty bad, like getting hurt. And he was getting really, really tired at this point. And Richard saw a patrol car coming down the street. I don't think the patrol car was there for him. He was just patrolling. Um, So the crowd finally was kind of closing in on him. And he kind of went up to the patrol car and was like, help me. Get me out of here. Um, So because he was worried he was going to be killed by the crowd. So he was arrested and put in the police vehicle, and I guess when he was in the police vehicle, Richard claimed that he, you know, spit at the crowd, stuck his tongue out, and got really angry. He decreed that, you know, had he a gun, the crowd would not be nearly as brave as they thought what they were. So, like, Courtney, what just happened was the city of Los Angeles chased Richard down and basically caught his ass and scared the shit out of him enough to kind of turn himself in. Yes. Yeah, and, you know, Richard's actions are kind of interesting actually Mm -hmm. you know his decision to literally run away um is on one hand kind of like very immature and childlike it's like that's what like an eight-year-old would do if they're going to get in trouble is Mm -hmm. they just run um but on the other hand it's also kind of very like brazen and cocky like that idea of like i can run faster than everybody in la and police cars you know but i mean probably you know, both of those things were happening at the same time. You know, he impulsively started running, and impulsivity is one of those things that we've seen from him time and time right. again. Um, and then he probably kind of, once he got going, leaned into that belief that he was unstoppable, whether this belief was related to thinking that, you know, Satan was protecting him, or if it was just straight-up psychopathy and believing he was better than everyone or a combination of both, you know, not totally sure because we're not in his brain. Um, but there's certainly some arrogance and cockiness needed to be, like, taunting the people chasing you, even as, like, they're getting closer and their numbers are increasing. Right, and then when he's in the car and he's like, neener, 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 kind of, like. Right, haha, I got away from you by getting arrested. Right. <laughs> I don't know if there's, I mean, I'm maybe way back in the day, um, if there's been another case where this type of thing happened, um, can you think of one? I can't think of one where it's specifically, like, basically the public tracks down the yeah, serial killer. Yeah, like, was beating the shit out of him. And had the cops, like, not shown up, they probably would have beat him to death. Probably. You know, and would have had fun doing it. Um, so something kind of interesting about his arrest. When Salerno and Carrillo interviewed Ramirez, Richard knew who Salerno was and was actually super respectful to him, like called him sir. Um, And the reason being was that he knew Salerno 
as the detective who helped capture the Hillside Stranglers, as we said. You know, um, the two cousins, Bianchi and what was the other one's name? We haven't done them yet. No, I don't know that one very well. Yeah, I don't either. We'll get to it. <laughs> um, I think it was in the 70s, though, right? I think so, or like very early okay. 80s. Um, okay, so the reason... Okay, so in a weird way, having Salerno um, cover Richard or try to find Richard gave him like an ego boost, you know, because this was like hot shit detective. And then what also started to happen pretty much immediately after the arrest were women wanting to meet Richard. So on the short ride from one building to the jail, a woman who knew Richard was in the car flashed her breasts at the vehicle. And she was definitely not the first to do so and not the last. Um, Richard was like tickled pink that he was put into the same cell as one of the hillside stranglers. He was put into the cell of um, that Kenneth Bianchi had previously occupied and he was stoked about this. Ooh. Yeah. Well, during the preparation for the trial, one of the children that Ramirez had abducted and then sexually assaulted before letting them go was interviewed again by Detective Salerno and Carrillo. And the little girl said that she would testify to what had happened so that it wouldn't happen to other little girls. And she knew that she'd have to face Ramirez in court. The detectives were very moved by her courage. In fact, Carrillo said he had to like, excuse himself to cry. Um, but the two decided to just drop the molestation charges to prevent all of the children involved from having to face their attacker. They thought it would do more harm than good for the victims as they were confident that Ramirez would never get out from the murder charges that were against him. Courtney, how do you feel about their decision? I see where they're coming from, but the vigilante justice superhero in me wants Richard to go down for these crimes as well. I mean, if the public knew about these other offenses, maybe the onslaught of women who threw themselves at him via letters and photographs of the jail would have been minimalized. So from the position of a therapist that works with children, I think that the detectives made the right call here. You know, protecting that little girl and all the other kids from further traumatization, which would have included multiple aspects, you know, being in the same room with and, you know, seeing her abuser again, having to describe what happened to her and basically in front of a crowd of strangers, um, then being cross-examined by Richard's lawyers, mm -hmm. um, and then on top of that, kind of forever being kind of known and associated by the public and press with Richard for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's just, it's more important to protect her than it is to punish Richard even more. Um, you know, she was already going to have to heal and process what happened to her, and that's hard enough without adding all of that extra trauma on top. The Netflix documentary on Richard Ramirez, The Night Stalker, um, it's, it's really informative, and this little girl who is a woman now, grown woman now, does talk about her experience. And, and it's definitely worth watching that um, program. I agree. Yeah. So Richard was assigned an attorney, and it made it clear that, you know, right at first, this is the one of the only decent things I think Richard Ramirez tried to do, is he wanted to plead guilty. He didn't want to do a trial. He didn't feel like the public would ever believe him if he pled not guilty. He didn't want to drag his family through it. He just wanted to plead guilty. I, I have to emphasize this, you know, very big, <laughs> because that was like over and over again. It's what he wanted to do. So now any attorney knew that this would be a huge case, lots of coverage. Um, an attorney could get famous for having a case like this in their you know, back pocket. 
even if the outcome was bad for the defendant. So Courtney, in my opinion, granted, I'm obviously coming at this from a different perspective, the attorney assigned to Richard's case in the beginning is an asshat. Richard said it over and over. He wants to plead guilty. Anyhow, on the day he was supposed to see a judge to be formally charged, his attorney convinced the judge that Richard was a danger to himself mentally and should not be allowed in the courtroom. The judge agreed, and so Richard had to listen to the proceedings in another room. Richard was super pissed. He wanted to tell the judge then and there he was guilty. Get it over with, sentence him, avoid a long trial. But no, this attorney, even though by this point Richard had told him he did not want to want even that attorney to represent him anymore because the attorney would not listen to him, still held out hope to be the defense attorney for the Night Stalker. I'm not sure what, you know, all rights prisoners have, but since he was not yet felt guilty, you know, found guilty, he still had some rights. He should have been able to, you know, be there for this hearing of his crimes, to fire that lawyer if he wanted to. You know, what do you think, Courtney? Well, there are definitely some ethical dilemmas going on here. You know, my understanding, not as an expert in law, um, but my understanding of the legal system is that the individual defendant ultimately has the final decision on legal decisions, like what to plead, if they take any deals, and like what type of defense they even want to use in court. So his public defender taking this choice away from him seems wrong, right? And, you know, not knowing the sort of mindset of this attorney kind of allows for a lot of speculation on, you know, maybe he entered that not guilty plea on Richard's behalf because he genuinely thought it was in the best interest of Richard. Um, or maybe he was looking for his 15 minutes of fame working on such a high-profile case. We just don't really know. I think it's the latter, but I'm cynical. Well, anyways, Richard eventually was able to fire this uh, attorney, and he got another attorney. And, you know, how he agreed to pay for this attorney, because it was a private lawyer as opposed to the, you know, one that the state provided, um, was kind of interesting. So Richard was poor. You know, he fired that assigned courty, uh, uh, excuse me, he fired <laughs> his assigned attorney. And so what he did is he agreed to give his new attorney any rights um, to the story that might produce money down the road. So um, this attorney saw dollar signs in his future because he knew this was going to be a big case and that, you know, if they make a movie or write books or whatever, he held the rights to all that and could sell it for a, a buttload of money. So why wouldn't he capitalize on this horrific piece of shit's life and, you know, the killing spree that amounted in numerable deaths, right? So the judge at first said that any and all monies from Richard's story should go to the victims, but somehow they were able to, you know, find the whatever the law actually said it was okay, and so they made the deal. Fortunately for this lawyer, unfortunately, um, he had a shady past. I believe he shot a sex worker one evening over a transaction payment that went wrong, and although Richard was okay with that, the public was not. So he too had to be replaced. In the end, um, Richard ended up being represented by two very green attorneys. They had minimal experience and had never tried a capital case. They too agreed to take the case for future royalty payments as the first or the second lawyer had. And again, this was very questionable using these attorneys. But Richard liked them, his family liked them, and they were also Hispanic, so he felt like he'd get a fair trial, I guess, with them as attorneys. So the trial finally begins, and it's like all chaos. Of course it is. It's Richard. So it takes forever. 
to begin because it kept getting stalled by the attorneys and, you know, other legal stuff. Per the book we've been using, the strategy of his lawyers was to do anything to buy time. This is a quote. In a multiple murder case, the best friend a defense lawyer has is time. Witnesses die, move away, forget, confuse details, and change their minds testifying at all, not wanting to err in public and relive, relive what amounted to be the worst experience they'd ever had. So I know this is the game that you know was played or is played, but especially in this case, it really sickens me. You know, again, at the beginning, Richard wanted to plead guilty. Now on his third batch of lawyers, they are allegedly intentionally delaying proceedings to the point that prior to jury selection, this pretrial, um, all this crap before the trial even started, cost California $1.3 million. And that was in 1988 dollars. So when all was said and done, the actual, you know, trial cost for the whole, you know, the trial, sorry, I'm stuttering, um, was $1.8 million or about $4 million in today's money. It was the most expensive trial in California history until the O.J. Simpson trial. So, you know, that's a lot of money spent on a dude who wanted to plead guilty. I know, I know, I'm beating a dead horse. Okay, sorry. Just like that saying. So during his trial, once it actually started, Richard displays his pentagram drawing on his palm, which is now a famous photograph, I'm sure. If you, you know, Google Richard Ramirez, it's one of the first ones that pops up. His groupies would come in and watch the proceedings. They would also try to see him in jail. Somewhere, probably in that book, but it could have been the Netflix documentary, um, I read or heard that it was up to 600 women who applied to get on his list of approved visitors. Richard started to wear sunglasses in the courtroom. When he wasn't, he would attempt to look really scary. I mean, well, he probably did look scary. It seemed that he knew that he was a monster, so what was the point of portraying himself in any other light? He tried to be menacing. He'd laugh when he wanted to do so. He'd flick his tongue to whomever he chose to. On September 20th, 1989, Richard was convicted on all counts. So there were 13 counts of murder, 5 counts of attempted murder, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. He was sentenced to death, decreed to suck ass at San Quentin, um, and... Oh, and so... Uh, let's see, there is a video of him after his sentencing, and he says this, quote, big deal, death always went with the territory, see you in Disneyland. Courtney, what are your thoughts on Richard's behavior before, during, and after the trial? Anything new mental health-wise you'd like to address? You know, Richard's behaviors at times are so inconsistent that it's really puzzling, you know, because before the trial, um, even when he stated that he wanted to plead guilty, he did not actually admit to the murders. You know, he told his family and the lawyers that he just didn't think he'd get a fair trial and wanted to plead guilty just to avoid the trial part. Um, so he's going into the courtroom essentially saying, like, I didn't do this. But then he acts in a menacing and taunting manner by staring people down and making faces at them. And then, you know, pulls the pentagram on the hand and the Hail Satan stunt, and which obviously flies completely in the face of his defense. And rather than just, you know, not staring at people, he almost defiantly wore sunglasses instead. And so to me, these actions seem to point again to psychopathy or antisocial personality disorder. You know, he was basically saying, like, screw the rules, I'm going to do what I want. Mm-hmm. 
So Richard, after being convicted, still did have some admirers. I mean, there actually might have been more. Um, these women were were ones who believed he was innocent or wanted to fix him or wanted a bad boy. And some thought he was a hero as they, too, worship Satan. Doreen Leoy, L-I-O-Y, I don't know how to pronounce her name, however, was the most persistent of his groupies, writing upwards of 75 letters to Richard. She and Richard eventually married in the prison on October 3, 1985. Per Wikipedia, Doreen claimed that the day Richard was put to death, she said that she would commit suicide. So remember, Richard did not have to face the child molestation charges because they were never filed. Um, well, Doreen stayed with Richard all the way up to 2009 when it came out through DNA that he was responsible for the rape and murder of Mi Ling. Remember we talked about her, was it the second second episode? She was the technically the first victim that they know of. Right. Um, so, oh yeah, so... Anyway, so she uh, she called it quits after after that because she I think she was like yeah child rape and murder not something I'm okay with. He was in oh and then another thing that did not go Richard's did not go Richard's way in prison was his run in with actor Sean Penn. So Sean Penn was in um, the same. I'm assuming it wasn't San Quentin. It must have been the jail cell before he was transferred over to San Quentin. Um, and he was in there for 32 days for punching a paparazzi. And um, because he was a celebrity, he was housed next to Richard to keep him away from, I don't know, whomever. So apparently he asked, uh, Richard asked Sean for an autograph. Sean responded with a letter and it said this, quote, Dear Richard, it's impossible to be incarcerated and not feel a kinship with your fellow inmates. Well, Richard, I've done the impossible. I feel absolutely no kinship with you. Sean Penn. To which Richard responded with his own note. Dear Sean, stay in touch and hit him again. Richard Ramirez, 666. Penn also claimed that Ramirez was always masturbating and that he had photographs of his victims on the wall that he attached with toothpaste. Yeah. Courtney? Um, well, I'm going to focus on, you know, the attention that he got from all the women during the trial um, and his, his marriage uh, with Doreen. And, you know, I think there's a number of reasons for all this attention. You know, on a very superficial level, you know, if you can ignore the teeth, um, many women found Richard to be physically attractive, and he was kind of, in a weird way, a sex symbol in the media, kind of throughout his trial. And so, you know, that's a thing. Mm -hmm. And then there are those women who are, you know, seeking vicarious fame and attention, you know, from the idea of being attached to him in some way. And then as for Doreen, there are likely a number of factors at play, right? She was completely devoted to him and spent much of her time and energy working to support him, to advocate for him, and you know, perhaps trying to fix him a little bit. Um, but there is another possible explanation that I was reading about. Um, I was reading an article in Latch, um, from the Latch, which talked about what's called hybristophilia, which is the sexual attraction to danger and or dangerous people. Um, so it's basically like a fetish um, that you can have for danger. Mm -hmm. And it is more common in women than men, although it's not a common issue. Um, but it may be a common trait between women who do seek out and want relationships with killers is that they have hyperstophilia. Makes sense. I mean, because this is definitely not the first time we've seen a serial killer get married after they were, you know, convicted. Right. It's a, a weirdly common mm -hmm. thing for, 
for killers and murderers to yeah. meet their wives in prison. And what was a uh, Randy Woodfield? Didn't he have three wives? I think so. <laughs> I think he had three wives in prison. So yep, and he's still alive, ladies. I'm, that was a bad joke. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Philip Carlo, the author of the book we've been referencing, actually got to sit down and interview Richard. You know, prior before he died. Here are some snippets of that conversation. So this is regarding his thoughts on Satan. Quote, what Satan means to me. Satan is a stabilizing force in my life. It gives me a reason to be. It gives me an excuse to rationalize. There is a part of me that believes he really does exist. I have some doubts, but we all do about many things. Courtney, do you want to read the quote on serial killers? Sure. His thoughts on serial killers. Some serial killers kill prostitutes. Some serial killers kill young boys. Uh, some serial killers kill homeless people. The only common denominator is that they kill people over a span of time. They keep on killing and uh, dot, dot, dot. How society can protect itself. Quote, there is no protection against a mass murderer, if you will. A mass murderer will come in onto the scene, whether it be a post office, supermarket, restaurant, and open fire. Unless the bullets miss you, you will become a statistic. A serial killer, if he's looking for a certain type of woman, certain type of victim, and you happen to match his preference, it's possible you could get away. He then goes on to say, quote, Okay, there is no set rule, there is no proof positive that once you come in contact with a serial killer that you will survive the encounter. There is no assurance of any of that because every individual is different, and the same goes for every serial killer. Some serial killers will let you live if you talk to them, if you get to them, if you get to know, if they get to know you. Some serial killers will take pity while others won't. This not only applies to serial killers, but killers in general. Some killers are hell-bent on just killing regardless of circumstance or situation. They have made up their minds even before they encounter you, and uh, there's no way out of it. The victim is at a disadvantage because she or he does not know the mind of the killer or what he is thinking. Courtney? And when asked if the death penalty was a deterrent, Richard responded, quote, No. No. Most criminals, the majority of criminals, kill for money, to get money for drugs. Some are not in their right minds. Some are drunk. They kill for greed, lust, and things like this. So, no, I don't think it acts as a deterrent because a criminal rarely thinks about his own death when committing a crime where such emotions as rage and hatred take hold of him. Courtney, reading these quotes by Richard, do you have anything you want to say? You know, I think you chose the perfect quotes to really reflect the core of who Richard was and what he believed. You know, people with chaotic minds search for control and stability. You know, often this can look like keeping their environment or their person very neat and tidy. Sometimes it's through relationships that are grounding. Sometimes it's through religion or many other things. Um, I know we've seen many um, or talked about different serial killers who, like, were very kind of, like, obsessive about keeping their houses neat mm -hmm. and clean and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so it would make sense, you know, that Richard, having a very chaotic mind, would be looking for stabilizing forces and that he found it in the religion of Satanism. Um, and then his thoughts on serial killers and public safety really seem to reflect the impulsive and inconsistent nature of his murders. You know, he was all of those things that he described at different times. Yeah, I don't know if you could talk your way out of uh, Richard Romero's killing. 
I mean... I don't think so. Well, but some of his victims he didn't kill. But maybe he wasn't going to intend to or set out to intend to. That's why it's kind of hard to know. Yeah. But like Ted Bundy had said that there was ones that he had not killed because he got to know them. Mm -hmm. I don't know that Richard Ramirez would have that same... I don't know what the word would be. Not empathy, obviously, but I don't know. Yeah. He's... It doesn't matter. I guess he's gone. So, well, Richard did not make it to the gas chamber as he succumbed to his illnesses of lymphoma, and it was complicated by hep C, most likely from all the drug use and alcohol. I'm assuming his death was not a fun one. Well, Courtney, I think Richard was addicted to murder and addicted to substances and addicted to just being the biggest asshole he could think to be. What do you think? Richard was definitely an addict with multiple addictions. Um, yeah, so that is the end of Richard Ramirez. Yeah. And so if you really enjoyed, um, our take on Richard Ramirez and you want to let us know all about it, you can shoot us an email at addictedtomurderpodcast at gmail.com. You can reach out to us on social media. On Instagram, we are at addictedtompodcast. And on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok, you can find us at Addicted to Murder Podcast. Thank you, Courtney. And our next case is one I'm picking out. And my clue is going to be the way that this killer disposed of bodies is different than any of the ones we've looked at so far. Ooh, the intrigue. Yes. Um, So, Courtney, what are we supposed to do if we encounter a person like Richard Ramirez in our lives? I'd say it's time to go nuts and go home and go to therapy. Sounds good to me. All right, everyone. See you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.